Episode 66 with Danny Rader, super guitar player based out in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a top session player there. He's played on everyone's album that you could ever imagine. Uh, some people like Jason Aldean, Kenny Chesney, John Party, Sugarland, Carrie Underwood, Reba McIntyre, Midland, Luke Bryan, Garth Brooks. That's just naming just a few. So he's certainly in high demand. He's also been performing with Keith Urban on the road for the last 10 years. So he's been a very busy guy. We had a lot in common. We had a great conversation. And I know you're going to get a lot from this particular podcast. Also, don't forget our sponsors, Morning Buzz Coffee, based out of Hamilton, Ontario. Great coffee. They'll ship it right to you. I drink it all the time. So make sure you check out morningbuzzcoffee.buzz. Also, you can find a second sponsor, Music City Canada, on the web as well, musiccitycanada.com. You find the information here. It's your one-stop music shop there. You can get anything you want. They'll ship it right to you. Great guys, great prices. Make sure you check that out. Also, Stickman Clothing Company. You can check out their address right up here as well. And uh, fantastic people own this uh, out of Saskatchewan. And they have cool, cool clothing wear. So make sure you check them out as well. Also, if you're uh, watching on YouTube, make sure you hit the subscribe button. And you can see all the upcoming podcasts. If you're listening on uh, iTunes or Spotify, make sure that you hit the subscribe button or hit the like button there and leave a comment. We love to uh, make sure you give us a nice five-star rating there as well. Also, all my links for the podcast available at www.getmypodcast.com. We pretty appreciate you watching, and I know you're going to really enjoy this one. This is Danny Raider. Okay, we are here with Danny Raider, and uh, nice to have you on the podcast sitting in his <laughs> studio there. Uh, it's a yeah. home studio in Nashville? It is, yep. Yeah, I live down in Franklin, technically just south of town. Awesome. I uh, yeah. I just had a podcast uh, with uh, John McEwen last night. And he just moved to Franklin like two nights ago. Mm -hmm. And oh, uh, nice. <laughs> seems like a popular spot to live uh, if you're in the national. So he's area. living in a house full of boxes right now. I bet he is. That was his background <laughs> in this video. It's just all boxes, yeah. <laughs> cardboard boxes. Yeah, it was great. So you probably you're. Uh, your studio space there is probably getting more use this year than it ever has before. It's got a lot of use, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it was interesting. This, I mean, I've always done probably a third of my work, my session work anyway, was remote stuff where people just send me files and I knock it out here. Yeah. Uh, but when we quarantined for you know like April and first part of May last year, everybody like everything was shut down. Uh, that was all anybody was doing, you know. So I kind of did more through that case. And there's a few, few producers here and there that, that we've just gotten into such a good group with it that yeah. they actually prefer to work that way now. So yeah. um, I'm doing more proportionally here than, uh, than I used to. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it, it's funny. It's kind of totally depends on the account or the producer or how they like to work. Cause there's some guys that will always, always want to track with a band in person. Yeah. No question. Yeah. And then there's some that are like, man, let me just send it to you. Just do your thing. <laughs> you know, it so seems it just totally depends with a lot of music now in country music. There's a lot of drum programming, um, a lot of loops and all that mm -hmm. stuff um, yeah. where it's probably not as important to have the band all together. I mean, I think it's always great to have the band together. Yeah. That's the, the real thing, but not as crucial mm -hmm. as you're laying drums off the floor 
with the whole mm-hmm. band. Yeah. Um, and it's nice to be in a position yeah. where people trust you to send you files and they know that you're going to deliver something yeah. really great. Uh, part of my approach when I, you know, stack three or four different instruments, if it's, you know, banjo, mandolin, acoustic, and like part of my approach is always to try to come up with melodies that, that are going to all play, play nicely together. Yeah. So that, and even from the standpoint of when they go out to play that on the road, like that, that gives you the opportunity to paint it out and have a real wide mix on hooks and stuff that are happening. But then when you go out to play it live, you don't have to have a 12 piece band or 90 tracks going, you know, you can still, whatever your guitar player wants to pick this hook and play that hook. And it doesn't hurt that you don't have a mandolin playing on it as well. You're still, going to hear that hook when you're hearing the song played live, you know? And so exactly. try to try to stack stuff in a way that it translates nicely to stage playing as well, you know? Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting as a producer here and, and working on a bunch of stuff, there are certain guys I know that I can send files to and mm-hmm. you're going to get stuff back and you know, you're probably not going to have to have anything redone. It's just going to, you can say, I mm-hmm. need this, I need this. But then there are yeah. other guys that are equally as good but need direction. Um, mm-hmm. May not mm-hmm. think the same way as a producer thinks, or because sure. um, it, yeah. it's a different mindset, right? Um, right. Yeah. Right. So, so what thing things like uh, as far as COVID era and stuff with you? How have how you been faring with all that stuff? It's been interesting times. You know, it's it's definitely interesting times. Um, we've had to kind of adjust a lot of our session protocols and things like that. In, in the way that we work in studios, you know, there's very few times anymore, you know, really never at this point where the whole band goes into the control room. You know, it yeah. used to be that we would all go into the control room, we get charts, uh, you know, Nashville, like number charts. Yeah. Yeah. They're you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we would, we would, you know, get our charts, listen down to the song, discuss what we're going to do. And there's, you know, including engineers and, production staff or A&R, whoever labeled people, there, there could be 12 people in the control room at any given time. Yeah. Um, but that that's pretty much non-existent anymore. We pretty much pass out charts and we listen on headphones at our stations spread out, you know, everyone's masked up all day, you know, just, we, we, we've had so many cases where, you know, we're working, we're doing the thing. And then like, you know, one of our colleagues has to text everybody or call everybody and say, Hey man, I tested positive. Uh, my wife got her a test positive and, and I was working for these three days. So they have to call everybody. And then everybody is, was in close contact. So yeah. then six people have to quarantine for the, you know, and it's just like, if, if we have to do that every single time, it's just going to shut the whole thing down. You yeah. know, as, as many times as we're moving in concentric circles and working with different people from day to day. Yeah. So we just have really worked hard with, uh, with the uh, AFM here in town and a bunch of us are, you know, doing the work quite a bit and came up with a great list of protocols. It's like, if we're going to keep doing this, we got to do A, B, and C. Yeah. And, uh, and so, and it seems to be working, you know, there's always different camps and I hate how politicized it's all gotten these days with yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's like, shut all that aside. Like if we want to keep making music every day, let's, let's be smart about this and let's, let's do what we need to do, you know? Yeah. And it's smart. It's not hard <laughs> to do, right. And it's, it's simple. Mm. Uh, it process. costs nothing. Yeah, <laughs> it really exactly. costs nothing. You know. Yeah, um, I know it's it's up here. It's not too divided. I mean, we have people who mm-hmm. are who are yeah. not for mass and that type of thing, but it's very yeah. rare. Um, we're too polite. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah. I've actually, I was talking to, uh, like we were talking on a session just a couple of days ago about one of the things that I've actually found, a lot of us have actually found beneficial is now while we're listening down to the song once or twice, I've got a guitar in my hand yeah, and I can noodle around and find the parts and the voice sings and the drummer. He was like, yeah, I can actually like tune my drums and, you know, get settled in for the song while we're hearing it instead of hear it, go out and then take another 10 minutes to reset your stuff. And like, it's like, this is actually kind of beneficial. Like this might even be a better way of going about it. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting how that stuff kind of forces things to happen that you didn't see, but they might actually tweak the process and make it better. Yeah. Moving forward, you know? It's probably a little bit, just a little bit more efficient. Um, you know, yeah. having those breaks yeah, all the time and splitting and then getting everyone back mm -hmm. in the room again and, and all yeah, that stuff. Right. So exactly. If exactly. you're a smoker, it kind of probably sucks because you smoke. Yeah, <laughs> probably so. I, don't know, I haven't seen anybody smoking with a mask yet. That seems like that would be tough. Someone's got to invent a mask, right? <laughs> or some type of ventilation for a smoker or something. Have you seen Have you seen up there the masks? Uh, a handful of our session buddies uh, early on found online these masks that, you know, they're, they're basically like a K95 mask, but they have a, a little tube that comes off. And there's actually a little pack that it's like a wireless pack you know, like the size of a stack, a deck of cards. Really? And it has a, he a HEPA filter in it. Yeah. And, and it's battery powered, but it's got a little fan in it and it blows cool air, like cool, fresh air into the mask while you're wearing it. Really? And I've, yeah. I've seen and so that. like, you know, and so like if you're a bass player, a guitar player, where you're sitting in a, in a big room without a tight mic or a close mic, you can have this thing and it's blowing cool air on you while you're, you know, cause re when you're wearing a mask set, you know, eight, 10 hours a day on yeah. sessions and stuff, it's, it, it can get a little annoying to have to wear it that long, but as soon as I saw those, I was like, man, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Can I check that out online? I'll t take a look at that. Yeah. And kind of suck if you're a link in the, yeah. link in the bio or something. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Maybe I'll do an Amazon sale for it. Yeah. Uh, so a kind of a, a cool event for you. Uh, I saw uh, you on stage with Charlie pride um, on his, mm. what, what was his last time performing? Yeah. I've, I've spent a lot of time working with Charlie Pride up here in Canada. I'm his technical director mm -hmm. for all of his tours. Uh, so I know him quite cool. well. And, and my one of my best friends has booked him up here in Canada for 30 plus years. And, yeah. And uh, But yeah, talk about that a little bit. What was that experience like? He he is such a sweetheart of a guy. Um, uh, yeah, w my family will get into this, I'm sure, yeah. uh, in a minute. But, you know, similar to you, my family had an Opry show down in Florida that operated for 35, 36 years. And we actually booked Charlie Pride a number of times wow. back in the day, back in the, you know, yeah. eight, early mid eighties and nineties. And uh, so when I was like four or five years old, we were booking him and getting to know him. And my dad golfed with him a handful of times when he came down and he's oh, just nice. such a sweetheart of a guy. And it was really neat for me personally to like come totally full circle and now to be in Nashville doing what I do now and to have that opportunity to, to, play for him and to help put that band together for that performance. And it was really, really cool and really special. And, you know, we didn't realize how special it was going to end up being at the time, yeah. you know, because you can't see the future, but, but it was really, really special. I, uh, I felt so bad for him that he was so nervous during the actual, uh, yeah. what was he like during rehearsal? Was he pretty good? And just, you know, he, it was so funny. I, I think he, um, I didn't even feel like it was, he, he was, he was not nervous at all when it came to the singing and the music part of it. Yeah. That was like, like every time we, we counted off, he'd come in at the same spot. He sang it like that stuff is so ingrained and so old hat. But I think, I think just the gravity of the moment and the, and yeah. the honor that he was being presented with was just kind of like, 
uh, a little overwhelming for him. You yeah. Know? And, and, I, and I think like a lot of us, you know, he, I, he talking is totally different than singing when you're in public. And, yeah. and I think just like the moment just felt like a lot. I think that's probably what it, what it was, you know? And it was perfect. I mean, everyone, you just sat and kind of go, you felt that emotion there for him. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, some, something you'll probably carry with you for uh, a long yeah, time. Yeah. That whole award show was really, uh, really interesting to be in such an intimate setting this year. Yeah. Uh, with no, no audience, uh, you know, not, not a ticketed audience anyway. They basically had, I think it was like 50 nominees and they each got a plus one. Yeah. So there were no more than a hundred people in there at any point, which for an award show like that is really intimate and has never been done like that. You know, you know, I, I watched the whole thing. I really liked it. I actually almost preferred it than mm-hmm. any other uh, award show I watched. It, it went was, quick. I mean, every, and there was no mm-hmm. legs. It was sort of like, here's the band and the band started quick and it didn't yeah. feel like there was any quiet moments and the performances were amazing i, I just thought mm-hmm. yeah. maybe it's it, something that everyone hasn't been in camera for a while and they just wanted to give every i don't know what it was but it was something yeah, that, there was de- there was definitely a huge appreciation for how oh, we get to do this we're doing it you know like because none of us had played live or done any kind of performance artist or music like hardly anybody's done anything out for a year now almost it seems like and uh so everyone was definitely like they finally got let out of their cage again you know <laughs> yeah no, um but was. Th- that was definitely uh definitely a, a an interesting energy at the show for sure yeah no I, I thought it was really great so any word on the street in town on when people are thinking they're gonna start heading back out and doing shows again or is it still pretty much I have no idea yet <sighs> It's still pretty much up in the air. Yeah, I think a lot of it's going to depend on how the vaccines roll out and yeah. how many, you know, how, how much they can of the population ends up being able to get vaccinated and, and when. I, I would assume that there there are a handful of artists that are probably going to hopefully try to do something in the fall, maybe, yeah. um, with the caveat that they may have to punt again. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's been interesting to see how people have gotten creative. There's... A, Still plenty of recording that's going on, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, I think because everybody's got so much creative energy, they're wanting to wanting to record. But as far as the live touring thing, I, I would assume that the, some of the mid-level or smaller acts will be some of the first to be able to get back out and do it again. Yeah. Um, acts that can keep them keep everything contained to a couple of buses yeah. and maybe a truck. Uh, but the big tours where there's 50, 60 people, 70 people moving around, I, I, I think it's going to be at least until the fall maybe the winner on that, but you know, so much depends on what the case numbers end up doing, you know? Yeah. And I always say it's not, everyone's going to want to start all at once. I mean, it's not, you don't want mm-hmm. everybody starting at the, the uh, start line ready to go. And there's every single act mm-hmm. knowing the man going to go and it's like, yeah. cause it doesn't work that way. But, um, and right. the other issue is, right. and I've been talking to a lot of production people and it's a lot of all these production guys, um, they've all gotten or are working, um, other jobs, you know, they just, yeah, they've exactly. had to go get other things. So mm-hmm. they're going to look at it. It's like, well, I got this job now and I got benefits and I got this and that. Um, how, how easy is it going to get to get crews back, gonna, local crews back and the whole thing is going to be It's going to be tough to get a workforce back. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And even on the musician front, there's a lot of musicians who have had to leave town, go back home or move to a new city and pick up a new thing or do, do whatever different. So like, 
you know, I'm on the CMA board and there's been a lot of discussions there about how do we provide both instant relief, but also plan for the needs that are going to arise when touring does resume again. Cause yeah. you're going to have musicians that have had to sell all the guitars, yeah. you know, because they needed to pay the bills. They needed to pay rent or whatever it is. So there's, there's definitely, you know, some stuff in the works to, to help bring relief in that way. But it's a, it's a big concern for sure. Well, it's good that, you know, there's talks about that and, and, you know, there's up here in Canada, there's not a whole lot of talk about that type mm -hmm. of thing. And it's been a struggle to, uh, you know, keep things going. And as mm -hmm. mentioned, we, we talked, we ha I have a venue here with my family and, and mm -hmm. there's lots of money going out if you're a not-for-profit venue um, yeah. or city-owned venue, mm -hmm. but as a private venue, um, you're not looked at the same. Um, right. Which right. is really strange because yeah. never taken money from the government ever in our lives and have a great business model, everything works, we're not in debt, mm -hmm. and we're not giving you money. <laughs> but, right. But we're yeah, going to yeah. give lots exactly. of money, lots of money to all these <laughs> other places that are, are in debt that we've given millions of dollars to before already. Yeah. You can have more, yeah. but yeah, it's just mm -hmm. a weird, it's just government stuff, you know, it's, it's yeah. the same everywhere. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. so let's actually That's go true. back and, and talk a bit about how you got going. And as we mm -hmm. mentioned, pre-taping, pre we kind of have a little bit of a similar upbringing and and yeah. uh, grew up in a family family band. And you started playing drums first. Is that what I read? I did. Yeah, I started on drums. Um, I was probably two when when my dad would like sit me down on a drum kit and it was boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, bop, boom, bop. And that's, yeah. you know, I'd come out in our family show and play, you know, eight bars of that and, and take a bow and run off stage, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, yeah, I started with drums when I was like two or three. Um, you know, once I was probably nine, uh, I was able to, you know, come out and play. My, my, I've got an older brother who's a year and a half older than me, and, and he and I both kind of came through the ranks with a very similar path. And, and yeah. by the time I was nine, he and I were kind of splitting drum duties throughout the whole show. Uh, he he kind of became our, our full-time drummer when he was nine. Yeah. But then by the time I was that age, he was branching out and playing some keyboards and stuff. So we kind of would, would split time on the drums and, and at, I don't know, 10, 11 is when I just kind of started picking up a bass and figuring out how to make noise on it or plunking around on the keyboard and yeah. guitars and that kind of stuff. So it all kind of branched out at that point. And I'm sure you, you know, know the experience of like, you just grab something and figure out how to make some kind of noise. Yeah. And cause it you becomes know, that was, part of the show, right? It's, yeah, playing a bunch yeah. of instruments and you're in a family band. It was a show thing almost than yeah, it was a, anything else, yeah. right? It was a show thing. And I think also like for us, it was just, that was the language that we spoke Yeah, as a family. You know, it, everything revolved around the shows and revolved around music in some, you know, way, way, shape or form. And so it wasn't even like, hey, I'm going to learn how to play guitar. Like I never had that conscious thought. It was like, just yeah. natural development of things. It's like, there's a guitar. Yeah. And I, if I had a question about a chord voicing or whatever, I'd ask my uncle who played guitar or, you know, and it, and it was just kind of off the races, you know, it, it, in the same way, like, I feel like a lot of the comparison I'll make for, for me growing up on the beach was like, you know, I had a handful of buddies whose dad ran, whose dads ran uh, fishing boats, charter boats, you oh, know, yeah. and, 
And those kids from the time they were like super young would be, you know, walking on little two inch edges around the boat and they're, you know, tying up the sails or working on engines and stuff. And they didn't think twice about it. This is kind of stuff that was like so foreign to me, you know, yeah. I wouldn't, I was like, when did you learn that? You know that, but it was so natural to them. Cause that's just what they grew up. The family did. And that's what yeah. they grew up around it. Uh, I, I was probably 13 or 14 before I realized everybody didn't have a family band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> play music, you know, I was like, you guys don't play music with your family every weekend. What do you, what's really? <laughs> yeah. When I was that age, we, uh, we didn't have a theater, but we'd play a lot of dances and, and yeah. the weekend yeah. stuff. Right. And so it was like mm-hmm. every weekend, all my friends, especially in high school, they'd be partying all weekend long. And I had gigs. <laughs> you playing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I got a gig. And, uh, yeah. and it was the funniest thing. I still remember, uh, going to dances and all of a sudden you'd be playing away and, and all of a sudden your, your high school math teacher would dance by and wave at you. And, and I, <laughs> you're <laughs> it's like, like this is kind of weird. And then I had a particular shop teacher uh, that would come almost every weekend and he'd be going by and he'd give me his little wink and wave. And, and uh, the next weekend he'd come flying by, but it would be a different woman. And he'd just kind of give me a wink and he was like, <laughs> give me the sh- don't say anything. <laughs> and I, the next couple of days later, I just show up in class and he just, we just had this look. We didn't say, say anything, did you, but I did know you, you were doing a little extra credit at some point. <laughs> it, I think it <laughs> was. Yeah. On him. <laughs> yeah. It was really great. Yeah, that's funny. So who in your, uh, who was all in the band, um, the family band? So the full backstory in 1978, my granddad who had always had the dream of playing music for a living, he sold Hoover vacuum cleaners at the time. He was like the number one vacuum cleaner salesman in the state of Missouri at the, or in the state of Kansas at the time. And, but he just like packed the whole family up. So his three kids, he had two sons and a daughter. Um, so my dad, his brother and sister and all of their spouses moved down. So all of, all of the six of them in that generation played. Yeah. And there were nine kids in my generation, all of which played and sang wow. to varying degrees. Yeah. Uh, and then once we started having kids, all of, all of the great grandkids, kind of would come out and sing and kind of get into it as well. We, we had moved to Nashville by the time we started having kids. So our kids weren't as involved in it just because we were up here and would, you yeah. know, it was about the time that, that the grandpa was had sold the theater and they were kind of getting out of it. But uh, so, yeah, there were, you know, up to 16 or 17 of us family members on stage at any given time. Wow. That's great. And how many shows would you yeah. do a year at, at the theater? We did about 200 shows a year. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Summertime was like six nights a week. Yeah. Um, and, ba- you know, back in, in the, the real heyday of it, which would have been the mid eighties, probably early mid eighties up until about the nineties, yeah. early nineties, uh, they would do anywhere from six, 700 people a night Wow, at its, at its peak, you know, which six nights a week in Panama city, Florida is a pretty, Pretty, pretty good deal. Yeah. Uh, it went, it went down. Interestingly enough, it went down kind of incrementally, uh, after MTV started coming to Panama city beach oh, yeah. and they started airing all the Panama city beach specials and all that stuff. And I think a lot of the families that were the the biggest supporters of our show there, no, we're going to go over to Destin this year. We're going to go over to, you know, somewhere. And they, you know, the, the family aspect of the beach during spring break anyway, yeah. had kind of declined because people just saw what they saw on TV on spring break. And they're like, Oh, I don't want to take my family there. You know? Yeah. Um, so, so it kind of began to decline a little bit at that point, but it's, it's turning around for sure. At this point, it's not, 
not near what it was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what made you decide to move to Nashville? What was that decision like? Uh, you know, it was kind of a combination of things, but I, I, you know, I, growing up on old school country music, like, like I did, um, I never had like the, the dilemma of, well, do I want to go to LA or do I want to go to New York or not? I don't know. Like it was always going to be Nashville. Yeah. For me, it was just a matter of when, uh, when the right time was. And for me, I just feel like I had kind of gotten to a place where I just artistically wanted to go somewhere different than I was kind of being asked to go or allowed to go at a lot of the session work back home, yeah. you know, and some of the gigs that were happening back home. Uh, and it kind of coincided with a time when my wife, we got, we got married really young. I was 21. She was 20. Wow. And uh, I had finished community college back home and she did a couple of years at, at community college. And so she was going to need to get a four year degree somewhere and, and move on anyway. And so we were like, well, let's just go to Nashville. So she went to Belmont oh, uh, nice. once we got here, yeah. uh, which was a great fit. So she she finished her schooling there and I just hit the pavement and started finding work, you know, try to find somebody to pay me to play guitar. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I, I wanted just to go back for a second when you're saying you, you grew up uh, basically just listening to old country music, which I did mm -hmm. too. Did you listen to yeah. much else or was that kind of it? Because for me, I didn't really get into any other type of music until I got to high school. I didn't even really know anything else existed to some degree. Same. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I really didn't either until uh, until probably high school. Yeah. That's yeah. probably about when I started branching out a little bit and, you know, eventually discovered Tom Petty and the Beatles and, yeah. you know, all, all, all that comes along with, with that and some classic rock stuff, ACDC and all the all the meat and potatoes stuff that it's like, yeah, you got to you got to, you're going to be exposed to it at some point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so then it was just like a whole different level of, Oh, wow. This is awesome. <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. Um, and then it all ends up kind of combining into this soup that affects your playing and you become like a, you know, hybrid of all of your influences, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, there's very few musicians in Nashville that are my age that grew up on, old school country music, you know, like yep. there's so many guys in my age that it, they can, they, they, they'll break out into rush records or yes records on sessions and, you know, all kinds of Van Halen, all kinds of stuff that like is awesome, but it's like, that's not the vocabulary I grew up on. So I always feel like I don't have a whole lot to add when some of that stuff comes in, in like, you know, just random jams and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so there's very few of us that I feel like grew up on old school country music, you know, where it's fiddle and steels and that, that whole thing, you know? Yeah. I feel the same way. There's sometimes in conversations, yeah. people start talking about certain albums they listen to and certain cuts. And I'm like, mm. yeah, I know the album, but I, uh, <laughs> sorry, you lost me, but let's talk right. about Conway Twitty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so getting to Nashville um, mm -hmm. and trying to get gigs, what was that uh, experience like what was your first gig you landed it was um the first gig i landed was uh with billy dean oh nice uh yeah we we had kind of gotten to know him a little bit our family through through the theater and and some connections and stuff and um and so my brother and i both went out with billy and played played gigs with him for uh i think i played off and on with him for a good close to a year maybe yeah something like that uh which was a great great like stepping stone and and billy was so awesome and and great to encourage us and give us a shot when we probably weren't even ready yet but 
you know, he was so cool and, and great to, to, to bring us into the fold. And then I got a gig with Carolyn Don Johnson oh, nice. uh, shortly after that. Fellow and Canadian. Kind of switching over there. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, she's uh, what part of Canada is she from? It's, it's Fort McMurray, I think is where. Yeah. But I think she yeah, lived she in Winnipeg right. for quite a while. Um, yeah. But yeah. yeah, I think originally. She's from an Alberta there. girl, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, but so I did about a year there and I, I met a handful of like, that's where I, I got a little more connected to some of the the younger, more up and coming scene of musicians. And, uh, and that kind of led to plenty of different stuff yeah. after that, you know. But, so were you doing, uh, as far as session work goes, uh, was there much to be had at the beginning or is it kind of a slow climb there? Definitely not in the beginning. Actually, yeah. one of the first kind of shots I got to be in a studio regularly here in town was on the engineering side of things. Um, there's a Southern gospel producer, Michael Sykes, mm-hmm. who was doing, did a bunch of records for like the Oak Ridge boys and, uh, Jeff and Sherry Easter and the Gaither vocal band. And, yep. and, and he, and Michael gave me a shot and it was just one of those, like, I, I was kind of going in to meet him and trying to get, uh, plugged in and maybe get on his list of, you know, be called as a player. And, and I, sitting there talking with him and he's kind of asking me, you know, so what brought you to town and that kind of thing. And, and he was in the middle of working on uh, an Oak Ridge Boys record. And he said, you do any engineering? And I said, yeah. You want to engineer some vocals on Monday? You know, sure. Yeah. So he had me come in and I ended up being his, you know, kind of go-to engineer to cut all, all those vocals and clean up vocals and yeah. tidy up stuff before it gets sent off to mix uh, for probably a good year, year and a half. Oh, that's awesome. I think. And that was a really good opportunity for me to just, really get comfortable in the studio and you know learning pro tools shortcuts and really getting getting at home on that stuff you know yeah and i was cheap (laughs) (laughs) that's even better (laughs) well that's Uh, that's uh, that was kind of my first opportunity there and then uh you know the the playing stuff kind of just steadily got more frequent and and over time ended up getting more um you know, more records and less demos and, you know, got to the point where I was able to kind of get, get a pretty good amount of stuff. One of the first producers that called me a bunch was uh, John Rich. Actually, um, I got to know uh, who's become a really, really wonderful buddy, Adam Schoenfeld. I'm sure you know him or probably talked to him at some point. Um, uh, Adam kind of put, made me his go-to acoustic guy at a certain point and, uh, and got me in with John and I did a bunch of records with, with, with Adam over the years. And, and he was really one of the first guys to pull me in for like my first master record, you know, that that was like an actual proper record tracking with everybody there at the same time. And that was a really cool, cool shot for me. It was interesting looking. uh, I took a look at all music and kind of took a lit, a look at everything you were been playing on. And it was sort of like, gosh, you play bazooki in a lot of projects. (laughs) It's like, that is, yeah, yeah, that's, I, I don't even know where that came from, but um, it's funny, before I, so one of the first big records that I, that I got to work on at the time was for Jewel, oh, wow. and John was producing that record, and and I remember just having the conscious thought before I went into the studio, I was like, I, I want one more, like, jangly thing that I can offer as a as an overdub option that's not just a Mando or not just a, like, a 12-string acoustic or whatever, and I went down to Corner Music, which has moved now, but it used to be right right on 12th downtown here in uh, Nashville. And, yep. and I remember just kind of like picking stuff up off the wall. And, and I came across 
that bazooki it's a uh, made by trinity college and it just was like this is awesome this is great like every voicing i tried to play sounded sounded killer on it and yeah and so i bought that it was like i think it was like six seven hundred bucks at the time you know it was like i knew what i was going to make on the session so i knew it i i could i could float it till that money comes in and that kind of yeah. thing you know uh and so but that thing has just taken on a life of its own and there's so many people that like that that's just like it's such a cool texture to layer into a track because it doesn't take up as much space as a 12 string acoustic and yeah. doesn't make you it doesn't it make it sound super folky or whatever like a 12 string can do at times um Very but it adds so percussive. much more jangle yeah. than a regular yeah. acoustic does yeah 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 and it's it, it's it, the way that i kind of approach it usually it allows me to really drone and and cover certain melodies and if i hear something being played on another guitar or piano i can work that into my strum so it still has a a cool thing to it and yeah it's funny there's a lot of guys that uh, my favorite is um chesney always calls it the bazooka put that bazooka on this track <laughs> <laughs> that's great so i imagine with that instrument it's not something that you'd be getting called for but you'd have it with you and it'd be something that you say hey let me try putting this on is that kind of how you got people. certainly in the beginning yeah yeah certainly in the beginning it was that way it's like let me try this one other thing let's add one one more pass and see it see if you like this and uh but th there's actually a handful of guys at this point they're like if they're sending me overdubs at the house they're like definitely want bazooki yeah i want some ganjo and i want some acoustic and some electrics you know it's like so it's definitely i, I don't know if it's become my thing <laughs> feels weird to say that but yeah uh there's definitely a lot of people that, that like what it does to attract for sure that's awesome <laughs> And now as a guitar player, I mean, obviously we've seen you lots on TV and everywhere being their, their kind of guy with Keith and, and playing electric, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah. you're playing a lot of acoustic on a lot of projects. Um, it, yeah. you know, that's, that's a skill that's completely different than being the electric guy. Um, it is, it's, it's a very different hat. Yeah. That is, that is for sure. Um, it's, uh, early on, I think I had a bit of a like feeling of like, well, I they didn't call me for electric, but I guess they'll give me a shot on acoustic, you know. And I felt like it was kind of second chair for for a while. And uh, but I remember at, at a certain point, I I can't even remember who it was. Maybe it was, it was either like Jeff King or maybe it was JT Cornflus. Yeah. At some point we were on a record and, and I was doing some acoustic and it was like a really exposed, just me and the vocal for like the first verse, chorus, first chorus, you know, and the band didn't even enter until way later. And it was one of those things, there was nowhere to hide in yeah. this track, you know, kind of thing. And I remember one of those guys saying, man, I'm glad it wasn't me in that chair, <laughs> you know? And it was like kind of one of those moments where I went, Oh, okay. You know, and I really just like took ownership of it and realized this is not, you know, not something it's not a not a backseat thing you know that it, it's it's its own thing and i realized that i you know was getting particularly good at approaching the acoustic instrument side of things and the way that i attacked the guitar was different than a lot of acoustic players and yeah um just kind of like oh took ownership of it and i was like okay you know yeah it's 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 a very different different thing the interesting thing is that there's a lot of days where um a lot of producers that just will have me bring all my stuff, yeah. you know? And, and so I'll, if we track six songs in a day, four of them, I'll be doing acoustic stuff. But then the other two is we're tracking with 
all electrics and I'm playing electric on those songs. Uh, and the it, the thing that I've really had to work at in some ways is the quick transition and mindset from acoustic to electric. Yeah. Is even like how hard you attack the guitar and, and your touch and that kind of stuff. People don't realize what a different approach that is, even though it's, it's guitar and it's guitar, it's still it's totally like, different. Yeah. Totally different mindset. And, uh, and it's, it's, you know, it, there's times it can take, it can, I feel like it takes me a good 15 minutes to like just kind of reset and reframe and, you know, yeah. Reset on on the different thing, you know. Well, it's it's an amazing uh, skill to have because it's it's certainly not. Um, there's lots of guitar players. I would say. I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. you know there's lots of guys that can crank it up and, and play, but um, the, there's a, always just a handful of acoustic guys um, that mm, really mm-hmm. get that. Um, yeah, it's yeah. always I always put it towards being a fiddle player there's a lot of violin players who can play the violin very well. Um, right. But you ask them to play a fiddle tune and they'll, yeah. they'll fall to pieces. Totally different mindset. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. the same thing with a lot of electric players. They're, you know, they get comfortable trying that, but you give them an acoustic mm-hmm. and it's like, they'll get through it, but it's not what it should yeah. be. But yeah, it's, it's, right. it's two, right. two specific skills all together. And um, yep. yeah, it's almost for me, not that respect comes in to play, but you almost feel like if someone can really handle an acoustic well, that's a whole other respect level um, <laughs> in my mind. Anyways, it's it's that's another step well, up. One thing that's interesting about it is, that, and I've always felt this way, is that like there's so many ways to affect your sound on the electric side of things with effects and pedals and pickup choices and that kind of stuff. But the, the acoustic guitar literally is going to sound like what you make it sound like. There's yeah. no, uh, yeah, it's all literally all in your hands. There's no, nothing to, to change the sound of the guitar. Uh, and that's, I think there's something, something cool about that, that it's, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's astounding to me how the same guitar, you know, when I pull it out of the case and I play it, depending on the mic setup or what preamp they're using or how they're feeding the headphone boxes or any of that stuff. Like it's amazing how different the same guitar can sound from one day to the next. Yeah. You know, on even an acoustic where you're like, why would this sound any different than it did yesterday? But it, it can be wildly different from one day to the next. Yeah. And it's, it's like finding that. And I find that same thing with, I'm, I'm playing fiddle on a session or anything and yeah. it's finding that spot. Right. It's just a, mm-hmm. you just got to move yeah. that guitar because there's so many guys will just put a mic here uh, mm-hmm. and you sit there, it's at the 12th fret or it's behind here or right. whatever you want to do. Yeah. And it's not that it's, it's being yeah. smart. A couple inches can make a huge difference in one way or the other, if it's here, or even just getting closer to the mic or backing away or just a, an inch yeah. can make a big difference in how it sounds in the control room and if you're finger picking or if you're strumming and it's all uh, yeah, of you course. know it's going to yeah. be completely different from wherever you are and be able to know where that and probably your engineering background too would really help you sure. listening yeah. and finding that spot right? when i started like years ago and and one of the first guys that kind of encouraged me to explore with it was bukovac uh oh, yeah. you know just taking the pick and flipping the pick around or using different sides of it just to soften up the sound or, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. You know, Keith uh, uses those Tortex, these guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and for the real cat 
wacky telly stuff that he does, he always turns it around so the part with the texture yeah. is actually what's plucking the strings. Oh, neat. So that's what makes it really, you know, and just messing around with things like that, I, you know, was started really exploring with that a few years, a handful of years ago. And, and that opened up a whole new world sonically of like ways to make the, your guitar sound different than just strumming, just playing it, you know, and you realize how much control you have over the instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. As opposed to feeling like, oh, the guitar sounds like what it sounds like. Why didn't, why isn't it darker? You yeah. know, like make it darker, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so you really learn how to kind of how to uh, take control over the guitar rather than it controlling you you know exactly so obviously uh you were playing lots and and doing lots of gigs around town and touring lots and and eventually you got the uh keith urban call uh mm -hmm. there must have been yeah. there's got to be a story in in that call in that yeah i um yeah actually there is an interesting story there i had um so I had played with Gretchen Wilson for a handful of years yeah. and I had gotten a call from Chris McHugh, who was Keith's band leader at the time yeah. to come out and do some shows with a girl that Chris was kind of helping consult and musical direct for. He wasn't going to be in the band, but he was putting the band together. Yeah. And I had never had the opportunity to work with Chris yet. And I was like, anything I can do to get on that guy's radar, you know, both from a session standpoint and the Keith gig, if something were to ever possibly happen there, but it was such a long shot. I wasn't expecting that at all. Yeah. But I just was like, I something to get on Chris's radar. Yes, absolutely. And so I went and auditioned for that and ended up getting that. And, and that was a great, great band on that gig and uh, did it for a little bit. And then the, the girl that we were playing for decided she wanted to like do more movies or you know, the TV shows and this and that. So she kind of branched out and did her own thing. And, and so then the rest of us were like, well, now I, you yeah. know, so I got this like killer band. And uh, so we all kind of went back to different stuff. But right about that time, Gretchen asked me to come back and um, she had transitioned with some stuff and she asked me to come back and band lead for her. Yeah. I was like, okay, that'd be sure. It kind of worked out timing wise. And so I went back and I wasn't back there for, I don't know, a month and a half maybe as her band leader. And then Chris calls me and says, Hey man, would you actually, the first question he asked me was, do you play B3? And I said, yeah, why? What's up? I'd never played B3 in my life. But, uh. <laughs> I've <laughs> done like, that yeah. before. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he's like, okay, well, all right, stand by. And so, you know, a day or two goes by and, <clears throat> And he asked me, he's like, man, would you be into coming out with Keith? Uh, you know, he, he wanted at the time, I think Keith was looking to add a keyboard player that also did a little bit of like strummy stuff if yeah. they needed it, you know. But I think Chris and some of the other band guys were like, we need somebody that's we're going to need more ganjo. Like this guy's going to end up doing more of that stuff than he is keys. So they kind of were like. They knew, I think they all knew I could cover enough keys to, to do what he needed keys wise. Yeah. Um, and, and it, I think they were basically just trying to frame it so they could get me in the band. I think I, I you know, it's kind of what it was painted to me later on, but, yeah. but it was one of those like, yeah, I play B3. Sure. So I went out and bought a B3 and learned how to play it. Uh, <laughs> once I knew that I was going to have the gig. And so I yeah. had a B3 up in my garage for a couple of months till the, till the, the first gig that we needed to do happened. And I was just like learning how to 
work the draw bars and draw bar settings and even i turned the thing on i had to like call a buddy i'm like so which <laughs> lever do i hit first and you know it's like um what's this so, weird but, connection uh, the, with all the things coming yeah exactly <laughs> how does that you know because it's like you have to hit the start button first and let it warm up for five or six seconds and then hit the run button and you know it's like all this stuff i was like i don't want to blow this thing up like teach me how, how do i turn it on <laughs> so i called murph wonka who's like the b3 guru here in town and and he kind of gave me the crash course in 15 minutes and showed me what I needed to needed to know. Yeah. Uh, so then, yeah, once I got in there, I was like, you know, when I started with him, I was actually doing keys on almost half the show, maybe when I first started. Wow. And then it was acoustic jangly stuff and electric on a few songs in the beginning. And, but it was, it, you know, I really enjoyed, I've always enjoyed the challenge of learning something new and getting to branch out a little bit and, and be challenged and uncomfortable a little bit. So yeah. the idea of playing a cello line with my left hand over here while holding down the B3 pad on this side and singing a background at the same time was like, sure, yeah, that sounds yeah. fun. Let me learn how to do that, you know? <laughs> uh, and so we just kind of dove in and, and, and it worked out great, but it was kind of, uh, has always seemed funny to me that I think Keith, when I started that gig, was under the impression that I was a keyboard player yeah. first. <laughs> <laughs> when I first came in, you know, obviously like, awesome. you realize later on, but yeah. <laughs> I think that was the, the initial, the initial sell, which is hilarious to me. <laughs> uh, yeah. I would have crapped my pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh, I've done that for a gig where I, you know, yeah. Can you play this? And say, yeah, yeah. You kind of play it, but it's sort of like, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I had yeah, the same absolutely. experience with uh, accordion. That's why I play it now. We were the first tour I was doing with Keith. We were on stage at Municipal Auditorium uh, doing full production rehearsals and working up um, Making Memories of Us, I think was the song. And and I, and I was playing the, like the keyboard parts from the record with just a little cello line and some pad and a little p piano. And he just wanted to change it up, do something different with it. He's like, do you have an accordion with you? I said, oh, I don't have it with me. I don't, I'll, bring it on, I'll bring it on Monday. I'll bring it on Monday. We can play around with that. You know, ah, oh, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. Amazon. And so I, I immediately <laughs> left rehearsal and called a buddy of mine. I was like, dude, can I borrow your accordion this weekend? I got to learn how to play it. <laughs> That's awesome. O ordered, ordered one. And, and, uh, I, I can't even imagine the, the awful sounds that my wife had to endure that whole weekend at our house while I'm trying to learn <laughs> how, to, how to control the bellows and figure out how to make some kind of noise on it. Yeah. You had to scratch it up a few times to make it look you've had it. For, yeah, exactly. <laughs> throw it around. <laughs> exactly. That's great. So what was it like, um, you know, your first tour with Keith? Obviously, he's, you know, an awesome person mm -hmm. to tour with, I imagine. Um, yeah. Uh, what was that kind of lead up to getting out there? Were you just jumping on the beginning of a tour or you were just kind of... I, I came on, so he had done, he was coming off a, a year where he had kind of downsized the band and was just doing like festivals and some corporates. Yeah. And they added me in like September. And so we did a couple of corporates. The first gig that I did like public performance with him was the uh, halftime show at the uh, Thanksgiving Day Cowboys game. Funny. So it was like, off you go, a <laughs> major televised thing. And um, so we did that, but the first tour I did, we started production rehearsals, I think in like April of the next year. And we kicked off in like May, something like that. Yeah. And, um, so I kind of got my feet wet a little bit with a few like 
kind of lower profile performances. And then we had plenty of time before the actual tour to, to work up arrangements. And um, the very first musical rehearsals I did, uh, Keith wasn't even there for it. It was just the band for a couple of days working up stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of nice to, to, you know, have a little bit of time to kind of get, get my bearings, you know, before yeah. feeling like you're totally thrown into the fire, you know, but it was, you know, Keith is, he loves to, uh, dive as deep as he can into uh, rethinking arrangements and uh, changing stuff up and really never wants to just settle for the same way that he did it on the last tour. So he's always looking to change things up and and rework things. And so it offers an opportunity to kind of uh, keep relearning the thing, you know, most of the songs that we played out there, but because the personnel in the band changed over time and because he, wanted to rethink how we played it. a bunch of those songs I played three or four different instruments on over the time we were there. So, oh, yeah. you know, a song that I played keys on the first couple of years, the next couple of years I was playing, uh, bazooki or, uh, wait, let's see, hang on. My, my zoom is doing something squarely here. That's all right. You got very bright all of a sudden. Did I really? Yeah, <laughs> he screened. Just gonna look it up. There we go. Oh, yeah, yeah. there we go. Sorry about that. I was like, <laughs> Adobe right. needs to update. I'll I'll update you later. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like then the next couple of years I played Ganjo on it, and then the next couple of years I played Electric on it. So yeah, it was an interesting evolution over time for sure. <laughs> That's neat. So you must have uh, obviously played a lot of different types of gigs with with Keith. Um, do you have some yeah. particular favorite places that you you know besides canada of course but uh you know there was uh actually there was one gig in quebec city that we have always talked about was the coolest gig i think we've ever played it was some rock festival over there uh like the night before us uh the foo fighters were headlining and the night after us it was the stones i think it was like one of those big rock festivals where it's ninety thousand people or something like that and i'd never played a gig like that and it was one of the coolest gigs we we always talked about what a cool gig that was um you may know the name of the festival i i can't remember it's in yeah there's um trying to remember if i was going to look because i I remember seeing that um festival i thought i had it somewhere close Mm -hmm. but maybe i maybe i don't um that was that was a fun one there were some gigs we did in europe that were really fun when just the the energy of the crowd and and the 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 difference in how people approach concerts and concert etiquette and protocol, like, yeah, you know, in Europe, there were places where it felt like they, they would just in the middle of a song, break out into this soccer stadium style chant. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they're just like, Oh, and they clearly like are all just doing their thing. And we just almost felt like we're all just part of this moment, you know, and this, yeah, yeah. this thing, because it wasn't anything that was ever part of our song going into that night, but it like, they were doing this thing and, and it was like awesome. And Keith would answer it with little guitar thing. And then it would evolve. And, and some of those moments were so cool. I think it was Glasgow was particularly awesome. Oh yeah. Uh, from, from that standpoint, you know, it's, there, it's, there was, uh, Berlin was fun too. There was a, something that happened at that show. I remember being like, wow, that was awesome. That was so cool. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I talked to uh, Jerry, Jerry flowers, a. Uh, Gosh, a year, yeah. year or two ago, I did a podcast with him, mm-hmm. and, and he mentioned the Quebec date. Um, did he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, it was that definitely. was a that was a pretty special one. 
Yeah. It's neat how you just get certain <laughs> ones that out of yeah. all the ones you do, there's for some reason, this one will stand out um, yeah. more than any other ones. Yeah, it is interesting. So as far as uh, playing nowadays, obviously you're, you're almost doing more session work than you, you're doing anything now. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, that's all I'm doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there is no, no touring going on. And um, so, yeah, at this point it's just, just playing on records and I don't know, we'll see what the live side of things ends up looking like going forward. I don't think anybody really even knows yet, but, but uh, at this point I'm just, I'm just thankful to be making records. Yeah. Which interestingly, that was what I moved to town to do anyway. I, yeah. I had no intention of ever playing live when we came up here, I was a session rat and always wanted to, you know, have headphones on all day long. And that was, that was my dream job when I moved up here Yeah. and transitioning into producing at a certain point was always, always really important, which I'm kind of trying to take this opportunity since I'm home uh, to, to transition into that and take steps toward that and looking for new artists to develop and work with and help, yeah. help kind of come up the ranks with and, uh, have some really fun stuff that I've gotten to work on this year through through that, uh, which has been awesome. So, you know, see where it goes. But yeah, at this point, just making records. So, what was that transition? <laughs> Obviously, with you're out with Keith quite a bit. Um, you know, it's hard to keep mm -hmm. that studio thing going and being out and, and touring and being available for that. Obviously, you probably yeah. had a commitment with Keith that whatever happened there, you had to go. Um, right. Yeah. Was that, is that a difficult thing to manage? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were, the interesting, one good thing about the, the way Keith likes to tour is he really didn't ever like to be gone for more than a, a couple days at a time or a few days at a time. So most of our touring, as long as we were in the U S or even a good chunk of Canada, uh, we would fly back, uh, with him in between shows. So he would book like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday out. Yeah. And then we'd fly back Saturday night and be home by two in the morning and have four days at home. And then we'd fly back out the next weekend to do it again. So I wasn't, you know, very, the only time I was ever really out of pocket for weeks at a time was when we would go down to Australia uh, or Europe. Uh, th there were times in Canada would, if he was basing out of LA or New York and he was chartering to him back from there, we would, we would stay out on the road for, you know, 10 days at a time or something like that. If it was a run across Canada, you know? Yeah. But for the most part, it was weekend based. So we were able to kind of come in and out and um, which was great because I could still book sessions Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and sometimes a Thursday before we had to fly out or whatever. And uh, and still not feel totally out of the loop. Uh, but it's interesting how many people just kind of like if, if he was in the middle of a tour, even though I'm in and out, they're like, uh, you know, are you back in town yet? I'm like, I'm back in town every week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, I wasn't really ever gone, gone, you know? Yeah. Uh, oh, cool. Oh, okay. Well, can you do a session on da, da, da? So it's like, yeah, sure. Uh, but there's definitely been times where, you know, you have something, but honestly, I just as much for the work side of things, we always joke about this, that like, if you're ever short on work or whatever, just book a family trip. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> there was a stretch where literally like years in a row, every single family trip we booked, Keith would have a show come in. Yeah. And so we would have to like either cancel the trip or shift the days and, and or I'd have to do the gig and then fly in and meet the family there, you know. And so that was always like the running joke. And, you know, just from a family standpoint, that was difficult to manage at times, you know, because you're dealing with feeling like you're always 
having to disappoint or shortchange my wife or the kids, you know, because work stuff comes in, you know, which it's a blessing to have the work and I'm not complaining at all, but it's definitely one of the like challenges of the job and that position, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and conversely, that's been one thing that's actually been really kind of nice about this, this year, not being on the road is we've been able to kind of just do our own thing and not feel like we ever have to run the risk of a Keith show coming in, you know, because it was like, well, yeah, let's just, let's go do that or let's do this, you know? So it's been kind of nice to, to have that time to reset and really focus on the family and be able to prioritize that in a way that I haven't always been able to, you know? Yeah, exactly. So as far as, um, things coming up in the future and, and seeing what mm -hmm. you want to do in the next four or five years, do you think mm -hmm. have a, game plan obviously you're talking about want to do more producing in that mm -hmm. um yeah do you do you look ahead and say i want to be here by this point you're that type of person or you kind of just seem to take it as it goes um i used to be a lot more of a like goal setter and i would like first of the year i would always set a goal for the for the next year i find myself doing a little less of that after we've had kids yeah not consciously but i feel like there's just so many ways where you've I don't know if you have kids or not, but like the, no, it just it just you feel like there's always something you're always busy with something. And so yeah. I just haven't been as proactive about like, I'm going to set my one year goal and my five year goal and my 10 year goal, uh, you know, but I think there, you know, are always, always things on the horizon that, you know, I'm like, you know, wanting to, uh, you know, just be present in the moment more, you yeah. know, not necessarily like looking to where I want to go, you know, cause I, I did find there were years where it was like, it, it never felt like enough yeah. when something happened. It was like, it felt great. It's like, Oh, you want an ACM? That's awesome. Great. Cool. And then like the next day was like the biggest letdown. Oh yeah. Cause then you're like, well, now where do I go? You know? And, and you feel like, and, and I, there's been times where I looked back and I realized I wasn't super present in, that moment when it was happening. Um, so it's, it's a difficult balance to, to manage, like looking forward and planning and being proactive and, and also still being 100% present and appreciating the moments when you're in them, you know? Yeah. I think this time that we're sitting here through COVID that's really refocused a lot of people where mm -hmm. we realize I really actually kind of like being at home more often and, and being involved mm -hmm. with, you know, it makes you yeah. rethink a lot of stuff. Um, absolutely. Yeah, which I think absolutely. it's been a good thing. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And definitely. I think it's going to be, I, yeah, I dug ahead. No, it's, it's going to make it difficult. Uh, as we mentioned earlier about getting the machine started again, is there going to yeah. be a lot of guys who are going to be like, yeah, you know what? I'm good hanging at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bet there are. Yeah, it's yeah. true. Yeah. But, uh, um, but no, go ahead. I definitely, uh, I definitely have been really wanting to, to lean more into the production things though. That's, that's, if there, if there were one thing that I would say is a, a, a goal that I want to accomplish that I, that I haven't done or isn't part of the normal thing, it would be, it would be branching out and, and finding some new artists and getting, getting the production thing off the ground. Yeah. That's something I've always wanted to do. And I feel like I've never really been able to prioritize it because I've had the touring gig and then you take the sessions that come up cause they, you know, pay the bills and that kind of stuff. But I, the, 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 the way that the production thing 
kind of happens at this point, especially, you know, it's an investment of your time and a lot of it is done on spec on the front end and you don't necessarily make any money for a while at it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of somewhat wrapped up in the songwriting in a lot of ways these days, you know, so there's that aspect of things. So it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing because what it means to be a, a record producer now is not at all what it was 20 years ago when exactly. I said, I want to move to town and make records, you know? So it's, it's an ever evolving target in some ways, but you know, that's definitely one thing I want to get into for sure. Yeah, it seems like now a lot of producers are guys who can make beats and right you yeah, know the tra track guys yeah yeah and they, they end up being producer guys um yeah because they're kind of they're creating a song and creating a vibe and yeah. it ends up being um and, and it's the same kind of thing but it's just different i mean it's not yeah not the same yeah. as getting a bunch of guys in and figuring out an arrangement and and right you know producing guys you just kind of creating stuff as it goes right mm -hmm. which, yeah. which is neat um it's just a different thing. yeah there's 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 things that you can create sonically and and energies and vibes that you can create when you're making a record that way that are really tough if not impossible to do when you do have a room full of people so there's there there's a distinct advantage to certain aspects and certain types of records i feel like that you can make when you're when you're building it like that uh, but there's also limitations there's there's energy that you can't create that way that only comes when you've got a room full of people at times. So yeah. to me, it, uh, you know, my, my approach on that is always, cause I, you know, I've got, I, I do plenty of programming here at the house and um, have done orchestrations and things like that. And then pretty diverse when it comes to that. And I, but I always try to let my approach on that side of things be dictated more in what, what the artist is comfortable with and how they like to work. You know, if it's an artist that likes to feed off the energy of a full room full of musicians, I'm like, great, let's do that. But if it's an artist that I know that likes it to feel a little more poppy and and want to be able to really get inside the sound of a kick drum and listen to 20 different kick drums and pick the right one, then it's like, okay, well, let's just build the track here. Yeah. And then we'll hire a few outside players on top of that if we need to add some some realness to it, you know. Yeah. So, rather than like, this is how I work. You know, it's like, well, how do you want to work? And then let's build around that, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk gear real quick. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So are you much of a, I'm going to go into obviously amp guy, but you fool mm -hmm. much with camper and all those type of things? Or are you? I do. Yeah, yeah I do. I, I, I use it all. There's, there's, you know, there's none of it. I'm I'm not too proud to to use any of it, you know. I use yeah. fractals on the road with yeah. Keith. Yeah. Um, that's what I that's what my most recent rig out there was, uh, which I loved. I I especially love the consistency of it from night to night. Yeah. Uh, and the ability to program effects, changes and automations and stuff. It was like you could never do that with just a a pedal board straight into an amp kind of thing. Yeah. So I love that. Um, I use a Kemper plenty here in town, especially if it's stuff where, you know, it's a non-carded thing and I just got to kind of bring some stuff from the house. You know, those things sound awesome. Yeah. And uh, uh, they feel the biggest thing I've noticed is the last handful of years, the way they feel uh, has gotten so much better. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, at the same time, you can't beat a, a twin 12 or a deluxe or, a, yeah. you know, I love the 65 amps. Um, I use a Soho a lot. I've got a Soho that I've had from Dan for a long time that I just love. Nice. What, um, what about guitars? Uh, do you have a do you have a go to 
that's your uh, and you know my, one of the first generation uh prs starlas you know so they changed the pickups at a certain point but the the first generation of pickups and their configuration i've got one of those that is i i use that thing so much i love that guitar yeah and uh i've got a uh a nash guitars telly that i love um uh Honestly, a lot of the electric work falls into that category. I've got 345 that I love, um, if if that's the thing. Yeah. You know. What about kinda, acoustic kinda wise? Acoustics. Yeah. I I go back and forth between. Um, it's usually a dreadnought is yeah. is my main my main workhorse, uh, but I go back and forth between my D18 Martin, mm-hmm. uh, J45, and and then I've got a couple of Taylors that that I love. I've got an 810 that's awesome yeah. that, that I use a bunch. Um, and you know, it, it's kind of, there's no rhyme or reason as to why I like one over the other. It, sometimes it depends on how live or dead the strings are. And, you know, I, I hate using brand new strings on sessions. Yeah. So if I do have to change strings on one of those guys, I'll change, I'll change them. And that won't, that won't be my session acts for a while. I'll keep it at the house for a few weeks or a month till they kind of warm up and kind of get dead. But, Cause I usually leave the strings on my acoustic for at least a year, a couple of years. Oh, I think my D18s had strings on it for three years right now. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I, you know, I yeah. just, I love the way they, they sound. And, and as long as you um, don't let them get to the point where it's like, they won't stay in tune anymore. Get yeah. tune. Like that. You can always tell when it's like, all right, it's, it's too far. But I, I, Dan Dugmore told me years ago, uh, he was like, don't change your acoustic strings. Just stop changing. And I was like, really? You can do that. <laughs> Cause I, we were, we were, complaining about how they sound when they're new and he was like just stop stop changing them and i'm like ding like the light bulb went off i was like oh i guess i could just not change them you know yeah yeah because there's uh, nothing so, worse than yeah, that that sliding that plinky plinky and yeah like, it's just the, and it, yeah they're so every time you slide so through them, right yeah. so yeah you know i'll 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 keep them at the house and just noodle around on them for a few weeks before i take them out after i after i do change them makes perfect sense uh, but yeah, so those are those are the main go-to acoustics, I would say. And then the Ganjo I've got is uh, that's actually a really special one. Um, it's a it's a Deering Maple Blossom. Nice. It's their like flagship Ganjo. That it's it's like a boat anchor. The thing is so heavy, but yeah. and it's just loud and obnoxious and everything <laughs> like all that mid-range that just that's what a banjo is supposed to be. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's awesome. As far as yeah miking up at home and and that type mm-hmm. of thing what's your approach there um uh i've got actually it's let me see if i can if you can see it here i've got oh, yeah. this u47 yeah uh it's a warm audio u47 that's mm-hmm. awesome this is a this is a kind of a km84 type guy that uh brett Tiergarten makes which is awesome yeah uh and then i actually also use a there's a 57 right here um I've got a 57 that is wired for high Z. Yep. And so I'll run that into my electric rig oh, neat. and blend that in with a little bit of like spring reverb or slap delay. Uh, and not, not as a spread thing, but more of like a, a just a blend in there. And, and it just adds a, a little extra dimension to, to the acoustic sound. And, um, and so I'll, I'll always print, like I usually print like one, uh, one main mic, either the the U forty seven or the the KM eighty four type five, um, one of those two, and then the fifty seven. That's usually. Neat. I'm not a big. I don't usually do a big left right spread kind yep. of guy. I, I I just like it right 
present right down the middle, you know? Yeah, I find you get weird phasing, weird stuff. There's so many opportunities for phasing, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, most of the stuff that I get called for, there's so many layers of stuff going on there anyway that a really wide sound is not beneficial. Yeah. You know, you end up, it needs to, it needs to find its spot in the stereo image because there's something over here that's going to have that spot. So if you've got this really wide acoustic, then you end up having to thin it down anyway and place it that it's like, just, just put a mic on it. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm actually far from the like audiophile tech gear nerd. I, when it comes to that side of things, I'm like, just put a mic in front of me. Yeah. I'll, play you know i'm way more concerned about the melody and the, the part the part yeah. itself you know yeah that's where i spend way more way more time on that yeah my trick <laughs> always with acoustics uh and i've done it for years and it's usually acoustic a little off here yeah. and i always balance it kind of over here with just a bit of course um mm-hmm. so it's just a, a straight yeah. course signal and it's just enough that it yeah. feels like it's not here. It just, it feels it's in the yeah. center, but there's mm-hmm. just something about bringing that chorus in here. Just yeah. that gives it something. You don't even really know it's there, but it just kind of mm-hmm. makes your head, you know, straighten back out again. Yeah. So there's always, I usually, usually end up, you know, if, especially if it's kind of a pretty poppy produced kind of sounding thing, end up doing like an acoustic on this side and then maybe a, a bazooki or a mandolin yeah. over here, you know, and and those kind of, complement each other and then the ganjo ends up living somewhere in, in, in here you know yeah uh so you end up getting this kind of like kind of hillbilly phil Se- phil specter wall of acoustics so, <laughs> somewhat <Yeah>. you know <laughs> cool well let me wrap up on a couple of quick questions i know i've taken yeah a, sure a your time um all oh, good man it's been fun yeah um if you had to leave the house with only one instrument which one would mm-hmm. it be um for a gig or just for fun, like just hypothetical. Your house is burning down. <laughs> oh, okay. You can only gotcha, take gotcha. one. Yeah. Oh man, um, I would probably grab my J forty five. Oh yeah, yeah. Good choice. That's. You can. Uh, yeah. You can always pick yeah. up another electric somewhere. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, and that's I, I've had that J forty five. That was like one of the first like nice acoustics I I got early on and I played it on just about every record I've been on and yeah sentimentally it's like it's been here the longest <laughs> did you lose any uh I know were you with Keith when you had the big flood in Nashville and you lost a bunch of I I wasn't with Keith yet but yeah. Soundcheck did my cartage at the time yeah so all my studio rig was over there did you lose and, anything uh, yeah I did yeah nice. I lost I lost a a few amps died uh a few guitars died and uh the one that hurt the most, uh, I had a Taylor when I, when I was 18 probably. And first kind of was getting into like building a, you know, bit of a guitar rig. Yeah. Uh, I bought a Taylor uh, acoustic and somehow it ended up coming out of my trunk that, so, you know, the guitar trunk, somehow that guitar ended up coming out of it. So like as the water rose, I had guitars that were just floating inside the 10 by 10 locker, you know? Yeah. And somehow that guitar ended up getting underneath my trunk somehow. I don't know if the trunk stayed full of air and some, but as, so it got, you know, soaked with water. And as the trunk was coming down, the guitar literally just got like squished down. 
And, uh, and so that, that one hurt that one, that one, uh, I actually still have that one. It's sitting in my garage. I can't bring myself to just like throw it in the dump, Yeah, but it's like way beyond repair. I'm, I still entertain the idea of maybe turning it into some kind of piece of art or putting it inside a coffee table cool yeah. or something. I don't know, but, but it's sitting out there. <laughs> cool. Um, last question. Um, yeah. obviously you've played all over the place, uh, and had, you know, lots of different venues. Do you have a, a particular venue out there that you or place or country or whatever mm-hmm. it could be that you haven't played that you've always wanted to? That I haven't played that I've always wanted to. Yeah. I would love to, I would love to tour in Asia. Oh, nice. Yeah. Never, never been. Never been. And I think that would be super cool to see and, and fun to do. I think, you know what? I have to look. I think that was Jerry's answer too. <laughs> was it? Yeah. It could have been. <laughs> yeah, I think so. You guys are Sorry. hanging out way too much. <laughs> I'll have to look back because all of a sudden it's like a light went off. I think, I think that's what Jerry said. It's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's what I'd say too. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's been a real... Uh, pleasure having this chat with you and uh i I, got you i think it's uh pretty awesome that you're getting to spend some time there at home and i like i said it's a rough Mm -hmm. time for everybody but we're getting some good things out of it and and uh good luck with uh the producing side of stuff and and i've seen you perform a bunch of times with keith and uh um actually the interesting the last time i was going to ask you too um he was in toronto at the molson amphitheater and uh, I think you were only like five, four or five shows in to would have probably been the last tour uh, mm-hmm. where you guys were locked into to the tracks a lot more than you you ever have yeah. been before. And it was yeah. it was it was awesome, but it was a, it was a different show. Like it was, it was sort of like yeah, it, it felt <laughs> like everyone yet and maybe it was like the third show in or something like that. I knew it was really early. But you could tell yeah. everyone was still, I wouldn't say uncomfortable, but it was different dealing with being locked in like you guys were. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's very I was, astute of you. <laughs> 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 There's definitely something about like, I don't know, when you've got, it, it's one thing to use tracks like supplementary. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's cool and that's great. You know, loops and tambourines and shakers and stuff. I love that, but... There's definitely when when like 80% of your sound is coming from tracks as a musician, it really paints you into a box, like into a corner. And you're like, I don't have the lane anymore. Like there's so much sonic information coming out that there's there's nothing I can add to this at times, you know? Yeah, it's, there's definitely times when with and, and it's not just on stage, like there's t- there's records you play on where. You, you get in there and you're like, man, there's so many things going on. And, and uh, to quote, to quote uh, Book, you know, there's times when you feel like you're trapped in a box of eighth notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, there's, what am I going to do? There's nowhere like, yeah. uh, but you know, that's, that's part of it too. There's, there's aspects of that, that, you know, Keith especially really enjoys doing these days and, and it's part of where he's going sonically with the records and wants to, wants yeah. To and you see the thing. point of it. I mean, the, the new albums and are it full works. of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's working. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But you could, yeah. it was, it was interesting because you could, you could feel the, you know, everyone trying to settle into this new kind of, yeah. uh, yeah. Vibe. Well, but we probably, we, we had probably changed like 18 parts of the arrangements 
that day at soundcheck too so we're probably trying to remember <laughs> so is this an eight bar turnaround or a four bar turnaround or what What part am i playing right now <laughs> yeah no it's uh it's always been great and uh love seeing you live and and uh looking forward to seeing a bunch of new music from thank you sarah this you. was fun this was i i enjoyed this combo it's good good excellent i'm glad you did yeah I'll uh I'll let you know. We'll just stay on. I'll, I'll finish up here, but we'll just say a proper goodbye. But thanks again. Sounds good. Oh, yeah. and, it, and if anyone wants anyone wants to see anything that you're doing, reaching out, are you active on on Facebook or Instagram or those things? I, I am. Yeah, Instagram. Um, Raiderator. R a d e r a t o r. Like generator only. Raiderator. Raider. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. the place to find. Awesome. Well, that's, thanks. Again. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.